Today's scripture comes from the book of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with him, with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, New Hope. So good to see all of you. Thank you uh, for reading that passage to us, sister. And uh, Deborah, thank you for reading for us. And, and Brian, thank you for the, the teaching, man. I, uh, I appreciate it very much. And uh, I think I like your illustrations better than the ones in the book. I think your pictures are cooler. Maybe, maybe a future theology book is coming from our brother with cooler images. We are beginning today a new series in the book of Job. It's called Out of the Storm. Job, Out of the Storm. And we're going to be doing this for the next uh, eight weeks, including today. And so what we're going to start by today is uh, with an intro. An intro to the book and an intro to the man, Job. So let's start by introducing this book by asking a few basic questions about the book. Namely, we're going to ask who, what, when and where. And let me just warn you that the answers to these questions might frustrate us because there's a whole lot about this book that we don't know and can't really know for sure. So we're going to start with that last question, where? Where does all this take place? Verse 1 tells us it's in the land of us. We can't know for sure where that was or is. Possible that it was outside of Israel. A lot of scholars seem to agree on that. Possibly northeast of Palestine. But we can't plot where Uz was on a map with any real certainty. But when? When did all this happen? Well, the, the book itself may have been written in the 6th century B.C. But the actions and the setting, they take place at some unknown time. Some scholars of believe that all of this takes place in the time before the Jewish patriarchs, maybe a generation or two before Abraham and, or Isaac. Well, again, we really can't know. The, the beginning of the story, in fact, reads something like, long, long ago in a land far, far away. But let's ask the question, what? What is this book? What, what genre is it? Is it history? like the book of Exodus, First and Second Chronicles, like the Gospels themselves? Or is this meant to be taken as a parable, 
like the stories that Jesus Christ often used and told. Again, that's another aspect of Job that's debated. The book begins and, and it ends with these narrative scenes, but, but the whole middle of the book is made up of speeches in, in the form of poems, 40 chapters of poetry. It's a conversation, but no one actually talks this way in the moment. These conversations were recorded in the form of poetry. So, are these real events, real life happenings, or is this book intended by God to be taken as simply a, a teaching device, like a parable would be? Again, we can't be 100% sure, but let me encourage you not to let too much ride on that question. It's an interesting question, and it matters for sure, but think for a second about those stories that Jesus told. Some of the ones that you might be familiar with. The prodigal son. He wasn't a real person, at least as, not, as far as we can tell, he wasn't. But Christ tells us about him and his father and his older brother in order to communicate real truth. So whether or not the prodigal son was a real guy who really lived in time and space is less important than the fact that Jesus uses his story to teach us real truth about God's grace and about our sin. Was there really a, a woman who, who had 100 coins and, and lost one of them and turned over her house to look for that one coin? It's a parable that Jesus tells. She probably did not really exist. But you wouldn't accuse Jesus of lying, would you? You wouldn't say, oh, none of this matters because she really didn't exist. No, we know that that's not the point of the story. The issue here in Job is that we don't know for sure whether this is intended to be received as historical fact or whether it's just meant as a teaching device, parable. It's somewhat like Luke chapter 16, where Jesus tells the story of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Not the Lazarus that he raised from the dead, another Lazarus. He tells a story about a rich man and a poor man who is treated terribly unjustly by this rich man. And then one day the rich man dies. Maybe you know that story. People have debated over the years, is that a real story or is it a parable? Jesus doesn't tell us. But if it's a real story, then, hmm, what does it teach us? Immediately after that rich man dies, he's condemned to suffering, but he's able to see people in heaven, and I think on earth too. He's able to interact with God. Is that true? Is that what really happens to people after they die and are condemned to hell? Or do they have personal interaction with God? Are they able to see people in heaven? Is that how the afterlife works? In the story, that's the way it works. But the closer we study that story, the more we realize that Jesus' aim there isn't to tell us about the, the practical details of the afterlife. No, what is the story about? The story is about the need to repent and believe the gospel now. And it's about the fact that the comfort, whatever comfort we might experience here in this earth is worthless if we're condemned to hell 
for our sin and our injustices. So in a similar way, Job chapter 1, as we're going to see next week, I'm not going to look at it today, but we'll see how Job chapter 1 presents us with this scene in heaven. And that scene raises questions for us. Like, is this really a window into the day-to-day events in heaven? Is this a window into how God makes decisions and interacts with his heavenly messengers, his angelic messengers? Should we really get our understanding of the relationship between God and his angels from this story? Maybe, maybe. But the closer we look at Job, the more we'll see that that's really not the point of the story. One scholar put it this way. He said, the book of Job is focusing on how God works in the world, not how God works out things in heaven. I think that's useful because he's he's, he's hedging himself. He's not saying that maybe Job was a historical figure. Maybe Job chapter 1 is showing us how God works out things in heaven. Maybe it is. We don't know for sure. We know that the focus is not that. The focus is on how he works in the world. So to be clear, I'm not saying that it really doesn't matter whether you believe the Bible is factually true or not. It is true. The Bible is trustworthy. It's inerrant. It doesn't make mistakes. It also contains, at the same time though, different genres of literature. And so some sections of the Bible are clearly presented to us as historical accounts. Some parts of the Bible are clearly real people who really lived and really died. We just went through the book of Ruth. Ruth, Boaz, Naomi were real people in real time and space. And some books, they even go to great length to show us that those people are real because they give us detailed genealogies of those folks. And then other parts of the Bible, they're clearly fictional. Clearly fictional accounts that are, that are told by real people to communicate truth, like the parables of Jesus Christ. And then there are still other parts of the Bible that, that use imagery, they use metaphor to communicate truth, like the book of Revelation does. But usually it's clear what genre a part of the Bible falls into. But from time to time, we encounter instances where it's not as clear as we would like it to be. And Job is one such case. It's interesting, for instance, that there's no genealogy of Job. He's just this person from a place that no one can locate. But I will admit that at this point, personally, I do believe that Job was a real man and that this is history. But the more I learn the more I'm challenged in that. And the more I've come to realize that that's not really the point after all. So I do believe he's a historical figure, but even if I'm challenged in that, even if, if, if that conclusion changes for me, that doesn't really affect how I understand the message of this book or, or the reliability of this book. So the point for us is that we need to approach this with humility, realizing that there's a lot about this story that we don't know. That's a good place for us to start, actually. Because the more we go through Job, Job confronts us with this fact that's even harder for us to accept, that there is a lot about this world that we don't know. 
that there is a lot about God and his wisdom that we don't know. See, Job humbles us right out of the start, right out of the gate. What we do know about this book of Job is that it is what we call wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. That, um, that means it's, it falls into the same category as uh, the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Songs of Solomon. In fact, it's grouped together with those books in the Bible for that reason. They all kind of sit there together in the middle of the Bible. The story of Job teaches us about wisdom. But it does it in a way that's different from the Psalms or the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. This book at times, perhaps more than any other, confuses us. You might say, yeah, well, Ecclesiastes can be pretty confusing too. Yeah, it is. Songs of Solomon too, maybe in some ways. But, but Job really does confuse us. And, and that's intentional. Because again, it confronts us with the unsearchable wisdom of God. Reading Job makes us feel small. It confronts us with the otherness of God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He, he can give us wisdom, and he does. But there are aspects of his wisdom that are completely inaccessible to us. The story of Job humbles us. It leaves us saying, like, the, like Paul the Apostle, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. We need to prepare ourselves for that right out of the gate. We need to be ready to feel small. We, we need to be ready to, to feel our limitations. You, you can't teach a mouse to, to sing opera or a dog to do algebra. And you can't teach a human to fully understand God, his judgments, his choices. God reveals himself to us. He reveals all we need to know about him. He gives us enough to know about him, to be saved and to be in relationship with him. And yet there is so much about him that remains a mystery to us. So that's humbling. But at the same time, the book of Job can drive us to worship in, in the sublime light of who Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is. You see, the book of Job is not meant to humbly, cause us to humbly hide from God. No, to humbly worship God. Many people look to this book for help with suffering. And that's what we're doing. For many of us, this past year has been a season, a long season of loss and pain and loneliness and fear. It's been a season of suffering. We should not be afraid to call it that. And so we're looking to God's words in the book of Job because we know that he can help us and he will help us. But we need to realize this. It won't be on our terms. The, the kind of help that we want is often simple answers. We want simple answers to straightforward answers on, on what we're going through and why and, and how to process it all. But Job doesn't give us that. He doesn't give us what we want in some cases. But what Job does do, this book does give us insight into how to suffer. 
It gives us insight into our own hearts and into the character of Yahweh. This book, when taken the right way, can give us comfort. But if we come to this book looking for the kinds of answers that we want, regardless of what God wants, we may walk away frustrated, confused. Job gives us a realistic example of what intense affliction looks like. In some ways, we get in here a model for suffering. But ultimately, Job does not explain our suffering, the why of it. We need to look elsewhere in the Bible for that, and we will as we go through this book. The book of Job also calls us to trust God. Calls us to relinquish our perceived autonomy, our authority over our own lives, to surrender it and rest in God's wisdom and God's goodness. Job shows us that in the midst of a whirlwind of confusion and pain, Yahweh is steady and trustworthy. Job shows us how to, how to doubt our own understanding rather than doubt him, the God of the universe. His ways will confuse us. The storms of life may nearly kill us. But God can be trusted. In fact, he must be trusted. He must be worshipped. In a sense, the book of Job calls us to live like Jesus, who entrusted himself completely to the Father and to the Father's wisdom. He did this so consistently that it stunned his disciples. It perplexed them. That Jesus was willing to, to face whatever the Father brought. He was willing to suffer and lose and even die. Jesus released himself to the Father's will. He rested in that will. And Job does that too at the outset of the story. Later on, he cracks. But, but even then, as he wrestles with pain and he fails... And he gets up emotionally, and then he spirals down again as he receives counsel, a lot of unhelpful counsel, as he's confronted by his creator in the final chapters. In all of this, Job's story instructs us on the wisdom and the justice of God and on how to trust him in the middle of the storm. Well, that's an intro to this book. So let's introduce ourselves to this man. Or rather, let's let him introduce himself to us. Let's read again from Job chapter 1, verse 1. It's, these, these verses are on your bulletin. It says there, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. The author tells us he was a blameless man. Blamelessness does not mean perfection, but it does mean integrity, sincerity. The ancient rabbis would say, his inside matches the outside. What you see is what you got with Job. He was not a hypocrite, not a phony, not a fake. And in that sense, he was blameless. As people looked at him, they said, I can't blame this man of being a fake, of hiding something. He was not sinless, of course, but he's still called blameless. Back in Genesis chapter 5, verse 9, there's another man who's described in a similar way. His name is Noah. Noah is described as righteous and blameless in his generation. Now, we know that Noah was not sinless. How do we know that? Because, well, we see him sin in Genesis. And also, we know the Bible tells us that no one is sinless. No one is righteous. They all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So clearly, righteous or blameless, these terms clearly must be used differently in different places. Here, blameless means that Job was not living with hidden sin in his life. He wasn't secretly disobeying God. No, he walked in close fellowship with Yahweh. Now, we might say that men like Job or Noah were righteous because of their faith in God or their faith in a future Messiah. That may be what's being talked about here. But as we read about Job, what we see is that he did live a good life. Not a perfect life. He was guilty of sin. But if the Bible calls him good and the Bible calls him blameless and calls him upright, then we shouldn't have a problem calling him that either. Upright means that he was honest and he was forthright in his relationships. He, he, was, a, he was a good man who treated others, even, including his servants. He treated them fairly. He treated them justly. He lived with generosity and mercy. We're going to find out that about him as we read through the rest of this book. He's known for it. And Job 1 tells us that he feared God. Which means, it means he lived with a mindset of humble worship and reverence towards his creator. You see, he wasn't just a nice guy. He wasn't just fair and just towards others. He lived before the eyes of God. He was willing to disappoint people and forego his own desires if it meant honoring God. He feared God more than he feared the opinions and the actions of other people. Job was a man of faith who sought to live before the eyes of his creator. And this motivated him, in the words of Job 1, to shun evil. In other words, he pursued holiness by turning away from what he knew was wrong. He also offered sacrifices for his children, too. You know what that tells us? Job was a spiritual leader in his household. 
He cared about the spiritual well-being of his children to the point where he got up early, not just to meet with God for his quiet time and spend a little bit. No, he woke up early and sacrificed for the sake of the souls of his children. Adult kids. This man really believed in God. And his actions reflected what he believed. His actions reflected what he believed. That's key for us to see about Job. You know, there's a, a famous comedian who used to say, in his routine, he used to say, I've, I've, a, I, I've got a lot of beliefs, and, and I live by none of them, you'd say. And he'd, go, he'd say, that's just the way I am. I, I, I have these beliefs, but they're, they're, they're just my beliefs. I, I just like believing them. I, I like that part. They're my little believies, he says. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing that I want, well, I just do that. And the crowd cracks up. I crack up when I hear that. Why? Because the crowd and I can relate. Can you relate? But how about Job? The way he's presented to us here, he is not a man who held on to his little believies because they made him feel good. No, he lived in light of what he knew to be true. He lived with the fear of God. Ezekiel 14, 14 and 20, they, they group Noah and Daniel together with Job. And those three men, Ezekiel says, were the most righteous men of all time. Job, Noah, Daniel. And that, by the way, is one reason why we might believe that this is actually historical truth and that Job really was a person. At least it's one reason to believe they may have been a true person because he's mentioned alongside Noah and Daniel who were, in fact, historical figures. But in sum, Job was a believer in Yahweh. And, and, and we need to remember that because through so much of this book, he is wrestling and struggling to understand and to keep trusting God. There are points here at which he rages. He accuses God of injustice. At the same time, he begins the story and we end it. We see him in, in humble worship. He has adult kids, Job 1 tells us. Again, seven sons and three daughters. In the Bible, you know, those are, those are good numbers. Those are numbers of perfection. It's another reason why some have said that this is a parable, because they look at these numbers and they say, these are, these are symbolic numbers. Seven sons, three daughters. They're all adults at this point. This man could have been in his 50s, maybe. Maybe he was in his 40s, who knows. Middle-aged, lots of servants, lots of animals. Again, animals of, of significant number, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke. These are all, uh, all, all those, those, those numbers are, are packed with, with that, that, that meaning of, of perfection, of, of blessing. And you might read this and say, well, good, I'm glad he had all this. He seems to have deserved all of it. After all, he's the greatest man of all the East, it says. The greatest man in his world, in his region. So that, that seems fair, doesn't it? That, that a guy like Job would prosper. One Bible teacher, Christopher Ash, he says, If the world is fair, a good man will be a great man. In other words, if the world really is a fair place, then someone who tries to live as a good person 
should justly experience blessing. A good man should have the joy of being a great man. But is that really how the world works? It's what we might call the retribution principle. The retribution principle, it's the idea that people who are good are always blessed and people who are bad always face hardship. Put differently, righteous people are always blessed. Wicked people suffer. The retribution principle. Job and his friends, as we go through this book, we're going to see they will argue about that principle. Argue about whether or not this is, in fact, the is it really, in fact, the operating principle by which God governs the universe? And if that is the operating principle by which God governs the universe, then why is Job suffering? Job himself comes to the conclusion that God is not just at points. His friends come to the conclusion that he is not really good, and that's why he's suffering. You see, but the argument all revolves around this question. Is this retribution principle, is it true? Is this really the way God works? This super positive description of Job in chapter 1 is followed by a really strange scene in verses 6 through 12. I alluded to it earlier. We're going to actually try to unpack it next week and see what's going on there. But for now, I just want us to read verses 9 to 11 of Job 1. God has just described Job as a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God himself describes Job in the same way that the narrator described him earlier. And then in verse 9, look at this. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But, but, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. This is what Satan says to God. Disturb his blessings. Disturb his comfort. Take something away, and he will curse you to your face, Satan says. You see what what Satan is asking here? He's asking, is Job really good? Does he really worship and obey you, God, because he wants to? Or is it because you've given him so much and he wants to keep what you've blessed him with? He wants to keep that comfort, that protection. Thank you, Elise. That was very helpful. He wants to keep that family. He wants to keep his stuff. In other words, does Job serve you, God, because he loves you or because he loves what you've given him? Is it really you he's into or is it the stuff? And of course, the only way to really find out for sure is to take away the stuff, to stop the blessing and then see. And that's what Satan suggests. And God agrees to the test. In one of these, these decisions that to us seems unexplainable. Why would he do such a thing? 
His ways are not our ways. We'll learn more as we go on. But already with this very first decision that God makes, this confuses us, this confounds us. This is a God of hesed love? This is a God of steadfast loving kindness doing this to Job? Allowing this to happen? We're already getting confused. At least I am. And you should be too if you know the God of the Bible. With more clarity will come as we move through this story. For now, we need to focus on this this challenge. And the verses that follow, as we'll see next week, a whirlwind of pain descends on Job, the greatest man in all the East. And it worsens and worsens until Job is left broken and wishing he were dead. That's not the end of the story, of course. He will see restoration and healing. But, but the way to get there is so, so hard. It's through a storm that almost destroys him. We might wonder sometimes, God, God why, why, why do good people suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people, God? Have you ever wondered? Satan is asking the opposite question. He's saying, why do good people prosper? After all, Lord, if you didn't prosper them, they wouldn't be good. If you didn't prosper them, they would have no motivation to be good. You see, God, rewarding people corrupts their motives. They're they're simply using you, God, to get what they want, the blessings. Take all that away, and you'll see what it is that they really care about, what they really trust, what they really worship. That's what Satan is saying. The book of Good Job gives us this question to wrestle with too, in a personal way. We We need to take this question home with us. If God took away what he has given you in this world, would you still bless his name? Would he still be worthy of your worship? Or or are his blessings what make him worthy of your worship? Is his kindness towards you all that makes makes him deserving of your allegiance? Is his kindness towards you what makes him deserving of your allegiance? In other words... What makes them worthy? Why do you worship them? What makes them deserving of your praise, your devotion? What is it about him? What makes him worthy of your trust? That's an especially difficult question. What makes him worthy of your trust if you believe that you should trust him? I just came across this morning, early this morning, I came across this fantastic article in The Atlantic written by Dr. Tim Keller. Tim Keller wrote this article about his recent experiences having been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I really recommend it to you. It's really great. It's a, it's a rather long article, but it's really great. And, and at the very, towards the beginning of this article, Keller talks about the fact that suffering can negatively affect our trust in God. Obvious point, perhaps, right? 
But he talks about his own struggles, and he talks about the struggles of others that he's known. He talks about a woman in particular who he knew to be a Christian woman. At least at one point he believed her to be a Christian woman, but she told him that she had been diagnosed with cancer, and that's why she stopped believing in God. She said to Dr. Keller, I can't believe in a God who would do that to me. Quote. And then Keller comments, Cancer killed her God. What makes God worthy of your trust? Is it your relative well-being and your health? Is it blessing? What is it? What if the blessing stopped? Or at least you perceive them to have stopped. What if he denies you what you want? Or he takes what you already have. Will he still deserve your confidence? Will you still submit to his wisdom and his ways? And even if you struggle to submit to his wisdom and his ways, as we all do, will you be able to say, he is worthy? These are not easy questions. And we're going to be coming back to them in the weeks ahead as we work through this story of tragedy and and restoration. We're going to see how Job responds to those questions. And by the way, his responses are not simple. His responses are complicating and confused at times. They shift as the story unfolds. But we need to ask these questions of ourselves as well. What makes God worthy of our worship? Why do we serve him? Who is it ultimately that we love and trust and worship? Is it him or is it the things that a relationship with him gets us? But we can't stop at those questions, you know? Because those questions alone, if all we do is focus on them, we will be crushed by those questions. They're too hard. And so as we walk through the book of Job, I want to encourage you to let it shape the way that you think about suffering, the way that you think about God's justice, the way that you think about worship, but also, also, please let the book of Job shape the way you see Jesus. He's the better Job. Jesus was the only man who was truly blameless, You see, when we say Job is blameless, i got to go on for five minutes explaining what that means. When we say Jesus is blameless, that's it, period. No asterisk, no explanation, no qualifications. No, when we say Jesus was good, we can end right there and say that's it. Perfectly good. Everything that we know about what it means to be good and don't know about what it means to be good is found in him. A good man is hard to find. Job was one, an imperfect one, but a truly, completely good man? That's Jesus, who interestingly suffered more than Job did. He wasn't surprised by the storm like Job was. No, Jesus walked into it knowingly, willingly, He surrendered himself to the whirlwind 
of God's wrath. Satan tempted him to walk away from it, to hide, to question the father's wisdom, but he would not do it. His friends let him down. Worse than Job's friends let him down. Jesus' friends even denied and betrayed him. And so, and so we look at Job with, with sympathy, but the crowds looked at Jesus with, with mocking accusations. And we would have likely done the same. If we saw him there, stripped and beaten and impaled on this piece of wood in public, we would have said probably, probably deserved it. After all, retribution principle, how do things work? An evil man, you're going to suffer. It's probably what happened to him. And even in the face of all the mocking, the father was silent through it all. Rather than hear comfort in the whirlwind, Jesus experienced that storm alone. He asked why, but at the same time, 1 Peter 2 tells us this, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus suffered more than Job, and yet continued entrusting himself to him, the Father who judges justly. Justly, he trusted the Father's wisdom. He trusted the Father's goodness. And we need to see him, Jesus, in fresh ways if we're going to entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly. If we're going to submit ourselves to his will when, when his operations confuse us, when he allows or, or, or even ordains loss and disappointment and pain in our life, if we are going to trust him, we need to see Jesus. His perfect example of what it looks like suffer innocently while trusting God. A God who sovereignly governs over the universe and does it well even when it confuses us. A God who's so unlike us, but yet he became like us in Jesus, and he felt the storm. If we're going to suffer well, we need to see Jesus in the story of Job. If we're going to somehow reconcile in our minds the fact that we know that God is a, a God of steadfast loving kindness of hesed love, if we're going to reconcile that in our minds with the fact that he brings these hard, painful providences into our life, we need to see Jesus in the book of Job. Not just because Jesus shows us how to suffer well. No, more than that. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, and he suffered not just to show us how to endure storms, he did it to rescue us from ultimate destruction in an ultimate storm. The pain that we experience in this life is no joke. The pain that some of you have experienced, and maybe the pain that is ahead that you don't even see coming yet in this world is no joke. It has the power to crush us left alone. But the pain of this world is as bad as it will ever get for you if you are in Christ. If you've entrusted yourself 
to the one who is judged in your place. However bad it gets here on this earth is the worst it will ever be for you. Because the whirlwind of pain here will be followed by eternal blessing. Because for you, the whirlwind of God's wrath was quieted. Jesus endured the retribution that we earned because we have not been blameless and upright. Because we fail to fear God and walk uprightly and shun evil. Because we fail to trust and rest in the wisdom of his ways. That's why he faced the storm. And that's what we need to see in Job 2. Not just an example of suffering. We need to see Jesus' substitutionary suffering in our place. That's why he faced that storm. So that we could be safe in him. Through whatever storms we face here. And rescued completely from the storm of God's wrath. Just like, think about storms in the Bible. Think about Noah and how Noah in, enjoyed safety in that ark while the storm went around all around him. Or think about Jesus' disciples who experienced safety in that boat while Jesus slept and then later he, he quieted the storm. Likewise, you are safe from the whirlwind of endless suffering if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. The pain that you're experiencing here is as bad as it'll get, and it is bad. Job doesn't minimize human suffering. Noah suffered. He saw the destruction of an entire community, a world around him. You think the disciples weren't traumatized by what they experienced in the boat on that night? These experiences are painful. They're scarring. And the suffering that you experience in this world and that our brothers and sisters are experiencing now are scarring. They are traumatizing. But there will be healing. There will be full restoration. That's the picture that Job ends with. And that's the reality that your story ends with if you have put your faith in Christ. In fact, your story ends better than the end of the book of Job. It doesn't just end with healing and restoration. It ends with resurrection. The story of Job can help us to suffer. But it must help us to find safety and peace in Christ. God willing, this is what God will do for us as we study this book together. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are not like us. We thank you and praise you for your unfathomable wisdom. We ask that you would help us to love you more than the things that you give us and do for us. We ask that you would use this story to build in us deeper understanding, yes, but more than that, deeper trust in you. Help us to suffer well. Help our brothers and sisters to suffer well with hope and to find comfort in the storm because of who you are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.